Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Greetings of peace, love, and light. What's going on? This is your brother, Baraka Blue, and you're listening to Path and Present Podcast. Yes, it's been about a month since the last podcast. We've got some updates. Um, just wanted to send love and light to everybody. I've been in Southeast Asia, and I'm heading back to the United States of America. Uh, actually, tomorrow. By the time you hear that, I should... Uh, I should be there. Um, I'm going to introduce the podcast, but before I do that, I just wanted to um, give you some updates on what's going on in my life. Um, The main thing, I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast, but I've been working on um, a series of online poetry workshops. Uh, We're calling it Opening the Eye of the Heart, and it is a contemplative writing workshop. Um, writing is spiritual practice. So it's been really amazing. I developed it earlier this year. We offered the first program, uh, like kind of pilot program in the spring. We did another one in the summer. And then uh, we're doing this uh, one currently in September. So, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been amazing. It's part writing, um, getting people to write. It's 30 days long. 30 poems, get you to write 30 poems uh, in a month, a poem a day. I share poems from different uh, spiritual, mystical poets, predominantly Sufi poets, but others from different traditions and across the world. And then we study some of the symbolism of Sufi poetry. And we also give weekly exercises, uh, exercise videos, um, lessons, and there is a uh, an online group. Uh, actually, we, we use a closed Facebook group where everyone can interact and discuss and post their poems and comment on each other's poems. So it's been really amazing, um, just the community that's formed around it. And, um, you know, just in these three workshops, I mean, we've had close to 100 people that have done it. So just the... The people that come together and uh, stay connected. We actually created an alumni group called the Diwan Poets. Um, and it's a way that we, you know, really connect with kind of spiritual minded uh, creatives, those that are on the spiritual path, but also interested in arts and the intersection of art with spirituality. And, you know, the kind of essence of it is that express you know art is is not just about self-expression but it's primarily about self-discovery and understanding the self and understanding the levels of the the soul um and you know i mean unfortunately in our day and age a lot of people don't necessarily find supportive loving uh, non-judgmental creative spiritual community in their locality so to connect with people that are on the path and people of different backgrounds, people of different spiritual paths, uh, even, and, but who are, you know, creative people and want to share that. And so that we can grow together and refine, you know, our, our craft as writers, but, um, but primarily as a tool to open our hearts. And we have people that are established writers and authors and poets and we have people that have never written before. So it's really been amazing. And we have people from all over the world. Um, so if that sounds like something that would be interesting to you, 
uh, we would love to have you. Um, the next one is going to be, I think we're actually going to have a, a course for Rabbi Al-Awwal, which is about praising the beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that'll be in November. And then we'll do the opening the eye of the heart course again in the beginning of January. So uh, you can go to roomycenterworkshops.com and check it out, find more information, as well as register. Uh, yeah, we'd love to have you. So that's that. And then let's see, I have some dates. Um, I hope this comes out before some of these dates have passed, but um, all this stuff is on my newsletter. If you're not on my newsletter, um, you can check out my social media, my Facebook, uh, and I'll, I'll post the link to it so you can sign up. But uh, the newsletter is a good way just to get um, updates on what's going on in my life and you know where I'll be. So September 7th through the 9th, I'll be in Salt Lake City for Celebrate Mercy program, uh, studying the Shema'il, uh, the life of the Prophet I'll be reciting po poems, um, Sheikh Yahya Rodis, Sheikh Aisha Prime, Sheikh Hisham Mahmoud, Sheikh Ubaidullah Evans, and uh, the beautiful singer Mu'adh Nas will be there. Um, so you could check that out, celebratemercy.com. After that, starting the 12th of September, uh, which is a Wednesday, I'll be doing three Wednesdays with Wasat. Wasat is a wonderful community in Seattle that I've been working with. And they asked me to actually give a series of talks for their Wasat Wednesday. So the, the, the last three Wednesdays of September, I'll be doing those talks. And the theme will be Toba, turning and returning to the source. And what's cool about it is actually they requested that topic based on a previous podcast of Path and Present. Uh, and that was the podcast with Michael Sujit, who is uh, an author and an amazing writer, as well as just a beautiful, beautiful soul. And he wrote a book called Signs on the Horizon uh, about his meetings with different awliya, different saints and sages. And he met some of the great sages uh, of the Islamic tradition, Sufi masters of the 20th century. So that book is really wonderful. I recommend it. But he decided to write a follow-up book about Toba, uh, turning and returning to the source. So uh, about a year ago, I sat down with him and we talked about that forthcoming book. I'm not sure if it's out. I don't think it's come out yet. But check out the podcast. Um, it's really a beautiful one. And he's a great storyteller and he has a lot of stories. Um, what else? I'll be at Princeton University on September 13th. Uh, for a gathering of poetry and thicker. Uh, Friday the 14th, I will be with Imam Muhammad Mendes, a friend of mine who is the Imam of the Muslim Center of Greater Princeton now, and we'll be doing some programs. Um, on the 16th, I will be doing a day-long workshop called The Tablet and the Pen in uh, Homedale, New Jersey. Again, all this stuff will be on my social media. Um, I think this is for young people, so I think there might be an age uh, cutoff. I think it's for uh, young people, So, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and then in the evening, 
on Sunday the 16th. I'll be doing actually a program at Masjid al-Aman, uh, also about Tawbah, turning and returning to the source, which is amazing because both the people at Masjid al-Aman as well as Wasit, they wanted a talk that was based on the podcast, a podcast episode. So it really struck me as amazing. And they both asked me, unrelated, but they both asked me within like a week of each other. And it kind of struck me that, you know, the podcast is speaking to people and they want to bring these conversations to their community. So that made me happy. Um, that's about it for now. Uh, I just wanted to introduce the podcast. So this one is with Rory Dixon and we've had him before um, where we talked about his book, Living Sufism in North America, Between Tradition and Transformation. Listen to that podcast if you haven't. It's, uh, it's a wonderful book to read that book. Um, you know, Rory is a, is a wonderful brother. Now I've got to have these two pretty deep conversations with him, just a beautiful soul and a, and a great writer. And really, you know, his book is, that book is so well researched and it's a topic that I'm really interested in. And there's so much um, parallel literature about Buddhism in North America or, you know, Indian religion uh, and Hinduism in America, but there really isn't anything uh, where there's very little about Sufism in North America. So he really filled the gap with that book. Um, but in the meantime, he's been busy. He put out two books in 2017. Uh, one is called Unveiling Sufism from Manhattan to Mecca, which is basically like an uh, introductory source to Sufism. And then he wrote a book called Contemporary Sufism, Piety, Politics, and Popular Culture. So in that, I believe he's looking more globally at contemporary Sufism um, and expanding that study out from the earlier study of contemporary Sufism in North America to look at more globally. So we talked about uh, Sufism, as you might have guessed, and we, um, we kind of focused on the kind of contention of Sufism. Sufism contended both, you know, this idea of within Islam, there's people that say uh, Sufism is illegitimate. And then we talked about outside of Islam, the Western perceptions of Sufism, which tend to kind of abstract it from Islam um, and what that causes vis-a-vis, -vis, um, you know, kind of like uh, Sunni traditionalists that identify with Sufism. So, you know, I think it was, uh, I really benefited from the conversation a lot and I always love talking to Brother Rory. So I'll give you the podcast. Uh, please thank you for supporting the podcast. Uh, it means a lot. And, you know, I would love if you reach out to me, let me know what podcasts you like. Let me know what topics you dig. Let me know if you have any suggestions for topics or for guests. Um, I love getting feedback, you know. Um, sometimes it's just me talking to a microphone or talking to one other human being. And I forget that, like, then it goes out into the world and thousands of people hear it. But Every time somebody comes up to me and say, I love the podcast, or I love this specific conversation, I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> people listen to that. So uh, I appreciate that. And um, the best way to support the podcast is just to share it. You know, if you dig it, share it with people that you think might dig it. Um, also to like and comment on uh, iTunes it helps it uh, boost it up in the charts or whatever. Um, and then financially, you can support on Patreon. 
Uh, Patreon allows you to support creative projects. Uh, Patreon.com slash path and present is our Patreon page there, or you can find the link um, on iTunes or on SoundCloud or wherever you may be listening to this. All right, y'all. One love. Peace. I'd love to um, hear about your new books and what you're working on, even though um, I wish I would have been able to sit with them in the same way that I was able to sit with your first one, because uh, I guess it's been a couple of years since I read that one. But that was, uh, as you know, as you've heard me mention multiple times on the podcast, um, <laughs> that's the book that exactly. I really love. <laughs> Uh, um, but yeah, so why don't you just bring us up to speed as far as uh, since that, I know you have two books out and kind of just introduce those books and then I've had a, the ability to just look over them. So I'd love to kind of jump into a few topics relating to contemporary Sufism. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I mean, since since we last spoke, uh, we, we discussed my, my first book, which was based on my PhD dissertation. Um, Living Sufism in North America, uh, and that was a book that was based on um, interviews with with Sufi teachers in in North America, and then also some historical work. Um, now, one of the other things that I was doing while I was in my PhD was uh, helping my my uh, dissertation supervisor, Mina Shrikipa. Um, really wonderful supervisor, by the way, very inspiring woman. Um, somebody who's sort of studied the Sufi tradition in a variety of ways and in various places. And while I was doing my PhD, she said, you know, um, she asked me to help her develop a course uh, on, on Sufism. And so we were developing these materials, writing lectures, um, you know, taking notes from various books. And, and at some point we had all of this material and she said, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a crazy amount of work to turn this into a book. Um, which it was kind of a, a funny thing for her to suggest because I was currently working on my dissertation. I mean, I was currently essentially writing a book. And in the midst of that, she proposed uh, starting another one. Um, but it, it proved to be a really good idea. And, and I mean, she was right. We had a lot of material. And so then basically that would have been probably, you know, 2009 or, or 10 or something like that. We started discussing um, developing an, an introductory text to Sufism. And, you know, one of the things that we found is that there were a lot of great books out there uh, introducing Sufism. You know, I'm thinking of Anne-Marie Schimmel's work. Uh, Carl Ernst, um, Kibir Helminski. I mean, a number of really fantastic authors have produced really, really great books. Um, but we also felt like if we were going to assign an introductory uh, text on Sufism, that we would have to assign, you know, two or three of those because they, they were sort of coming at the subject from, from different angles. Um, you know, Schimmel focused a lot on the literary traditions and, and some of the history. Um, Ernst was focusing a bit more on uh, some of the uh, political ramifications of the study of Sufism, um, you know, Orientalism and such. And so we thought, well, well, we want to create a, a intro text that is synthesizing some of these different approaches. Um, so we really had this, this idea of let's do something multidimensional because Sufism is, of course, multidimensional. Um, you know, Sufism has political and it has always had political implications and, and, and Sufi teachers who've been involved in politics and Sufi teachers who've totally eschewed that and said, you know, don't let the uh, Sultan's shadow, you know, come anywhere near you sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, some Sufis have been very focused on philosophy. The artistic expressions, as you well know, are, are rich and um, very widespread. And so we thought, why don't we create an intro text 
that in each chapter has four sections. Uh, one section on Sufism and politics, one on uh, Sufism and, and doctrine and philosophy and metaphysics, uh, one on Sufism and, and art uh, and creative expressions, and then a sort of historical section. Um, so that was the, the sort of first idea we had for what would become unveiling Sufism uh, from Manhattan to Mecca, uh, was to have this multidimensional approach. Um, the other thing that we then decided, and, and this is where the title comes in, Unveiling Sufism from Manhattan to Mecca, is we thought, why don't we go a re reverse chronology? Um, par partly to work against the sense that some students would potentially have that, oh, Sufism is some far-off, mystical, Eastern, ancient thing. Uh, so we thought from Manhattan to Mecca, let's start in Manhattan. Let's start with Sheikha Fariha and the Jarahis in Tribeca. And let's say, you know, here's Sufism uh, in the here and now in, in North America. Um, and let's use that as a jumping off point. And then with unveiling, you know, we're, we're aware that that can be an Orientalist trope, but we're using it in the terms of, of cash, of, of this concept of, of, of God unveiling. And so we thought we'd invoke that with this idea of, of gradually peeling back the layers of, of this tradition with the, each chapter and going back into time and space. Uh, back to the Prophet Muhammad in the Quran and and you know the early Near Eastern context. So that's that's the first book that um, we worked on after I was, you know, I mean, really we'd been working on it while I was working on my dissertation. But following the completion of the book on Sufism in North America, we we were able to spend a lot more time with with unveiling Sufism and um, you know developed it over the years until uh, last summer um, it it came out uh, with Equinox. So. And then the other text, is that yeah. since then, contemporary Sufism? Yeah, so I, I, again, and this is, uh, you know, partly, um, you know, I got to give Mina credit for this, is that, again, she's, she's always thinking of, of book projects and, and always um, wanting to collaborate. You know, she has a very collaborative approach, dialogical approach, as, as she likes to call it. She gets this from her um, PhD supervisor, uh, Professor Abdulaziz Saeed at uh, American University in D.C., um, who recently retired from there and a uh, really wonderful, inspiring uh, person as well. And he really uh, encouraged um, collaborative dialogical work and scholarship. And so um, while we were then, so once I'd finished uh, Living Sufism in North America and, and Mina and I were developing Unveiling Sufism, um, we also got an in to write a book on contemporary Sufism. And so she suggested uh, that we do that and uh, invited myself and uh, Marin Shobana Xavier, another uh, PhD student of Mina's. So we, we all knew each other very well and, um, you know, had had a lot of discussions about these subjects. And so then we um, got a contract with uh, Rutledge to write uh, Contemporary Sufism, uh, Piety, Politics and Popular Culture. And, and this was sort of a, in some ways, building off of unveiling Sufism, but honing in a little bit on some of the issues that we, we were seeing that Sufis globally are facing uh, today. And so we've got really three sections in the book. Um, the first section, which is the, the one that I um, spent the most time um, working on those chapters, uh, is on uh, Sufism and anti-Sufism which for any, anyone in, in um, the, the Muslim community today, it doesn't take you long to realize that Sufism is something controversial, um, that, that Muslims either see Sufism as the very heart and soul of Islam, something that is truly inseparable from the Prophet's message, or Sufism is 
precisely the opposite. It is something outside of foreign to alien to Islam that has infiltrated it and, and corrupts it and, and needs to be purged. Um, and, and so I think that is one of the biggest issues, you know, facing Sufis today, especially in Muslim communities. Um, and and it, it is a global, uh, truly global issue. So the first two chapters are, are focused on Sufism and anti-Sufism, which we consider to be one of the defining features of contemporary Sufism. You know, it's one of the things that makes contemporary Sufism different from its pre-modern counterpart is that largely in the pre-modern context, it was assumed. You might be critical of it. You might be critical of a teacher. You might be critical of tendencies. You might be critical of a specific group. There might be a whole host of Sufi practices that you're uncomfortable with, but it would be mostly unthinkable to say, well, this, has, this whole thing has nothing to do with Islam. That would just really sound odd to, to people, I, as, as I understand it, mm-hmm. um, in the pre-modern period. Whereas today, of course, one of the defining features of Sufism is that it is contested, um, is that it has been marginalized radically, that it is in some cases literally under attack. Um, and, and so the first two chapters of, of contemporary Sufism focus on, uh, on that. And then the, the, the next section, uh, we have two chapters on Sufism and popular culture, uh, particularly in the West, because we, we also feel like that's been um, something that's really defining Sufism today is, is the fact that it has become a popular cultural uh, phenomenon, uh, commodity, uh, with, with all of the, what that brings for, for good and, and ill. Um, and then finally, um, the issue of, of gender and Sufism. You know, we, uh, I noticed in my work on Sufism in North America, I had a number of, of Sufi teachers talk about the fact that there are more and more female Sufi teachers and that women seem to be taking the lead in a number of respects. And so we wanted to talk about uh, gender and Sufism today. And we also um, uh, interviewed uh, four contemporary female Sufi teachers and, and included uh, excerpts of their interviews in that, in that third section. So, you know, really it's, it's a take on contemporary Sufism that says, let's look at the issue of Sufism and anti-Sufism. Let's look at the issue of Sufism and popular culture. And let's look at the issue of, of gender and Sufism. MashaAllah. Yeah, I mean, those are all really like rich um, areas of inquiry. And I'm interested, as you know, in kind of all of these topics in mm-hmm. books. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is also why I really liked your first book is that it's something that I've dived into a lot and thought about a lot and kind mm-hmm. of experienced a lot. And, you know, I had personally met most of the teachers that you interviewed and I've personally been part of these communities. And, right. and I'm also really interested in just the history of Eastern traditions, quote unquote, coming West. And Absolutely. so I'd also been, you know, kind of privy to a lot of that, particularly 60s and 70s counterculture, but also interested in before that from the, you know, uh, transcendentalists and, and other things, the beat poets and all that. So, um, so that's why, and when I read your book, it was deep because it's like a topic that I feel like I don't always, find, I don't find a lot of people that I can really dive deep into it with. And so with your book, I was able to dive deep and on every page, I found something new, or there was a character that I knew about, but I found a new detail, like Sufi Sam went here, and, and I didn't know that. Or, you know what I mean? So that was really cool. Um, but as far as, uh, I'd like to just hone in, just in the interest of time, on yeah. a few uh, of, of the questions, and we'll see if we have time for others, but particularly I'm interested in this tension, this, this um, contested Sufism within the Muslim world, 
Yeah. And also, and I think this has an interesting parallel um, with the second thing you mentioned, which is Sufism being contested as a universal mysticism in popular culture versus um, more, I don't know what you would say, traditional Sufi communities, which kind of are rejecting that. So I'm really interested in maybe if you could just lay out a brief introduction of uh, what changed from that medieval period where basically, as some call it, the late tent of Sunni Islam, which is Islam, Iman, Islam, like you were Ashari or Mataridi and Aqida, you were one of the four methabs in sacred law, and you were associated with the Sufi order. That's, that was Islam. That was for, for uh, hundreds of years. And then I, I just, maybe you could just, you know, briefly introduce what changed and brings us to the modern world vis-a-vis that. And then perhaps from there we could get into the reception into the West, you know, how the Orientalists kind of, you know, their frames on Islam and separating it from Sufism and how that leads to contemporary popular culture. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great way to, to enter into the, the conversation on these subjects. Uh, and it's, it's such a big question. Um, you know, I'm almost like daunted by, by where to begin. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, so yeah, this, this shift from, as you said, this sort of, you know, I, I actually call it in my classes, this sort of traditional Sunni layer cake, the pre-layer cake, right? And you've, you've got the, uh, you know, the Sharia embodied in the Madahib and the schools of law. You've got the theology and the philosophy embodied in, in intellectual schools of thought, theological schools of thought. And then you have the spiritual path, uh, the path of the heart embodied in the Sufi Turu, the Sufi orders. And, and there's, at a certain point, a sort of assumption, like that, that was just such an organic part of being Muslim that most people were not even conscious of it. And, and those Muslims today who still were raised in a context that assumes that it can still seem funny to them if you ask them, oh, you're doing something Sufi there. Yeah. They're sort of, well, they, they don't, they're a little bit confused. They're like, well, I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about. We're Muslims, and so this is something we do. Um, and, and so it, it, is, it is really one of the defining features, I think, of contemporary Islam period, is that that Sunni consensus, that, that Sunni cake, that, that Sunni synthesis, uh, umbrella, you know, all these metaphors we can use to describe it, um, has largely dissolved as a consensus. Um, it, it is now itself uh, a school of thought, <laughs> you might say, on, in the contemporary Sunni landscape. Um, and uh, that, that is a really interesting uh, development, and, and there are a number of factors that, that come into it. Um, and so I can maybe touch on just a few of them. Um, you know, one, I think there's a, there's a saying that I've been thinking about lately, because uh, you can experience it in your own life, but uh, nothing fails like success is kind of one that uh, gives, me, gives me pause. And there's a whole a host of reasons why I think it's an interesting statement, but I think it applies partly to medieval Sufi tradition is that uh, because it was so assumed, uh, because that if you were a sultan, uh, you knew that you know, to, to show your Islamic legitimacy, you had to do a few things. You had to build um, madrasas, uh, you know, Islamic uh, schools, universities, um, schools of theology and law, and you also had to build uh, Sufi centers, yeah. um, you know, zawiyas or tekes or you know, whatever they were called in whatever part of the world they were in. And that was, again, assumed a sultan would, would simply know that, that you have to patronize these, these uh, religious representatives. And it's fascinating. I've been reading stuff about, like, you know, in, 
you know, the Mamluks and, and other uh, dynasties having like a head Sufi, an official head Sufi of like Cairo. And, you know, and he's like the government Sufi and he's in charge of all, of all the other Sufis. And some Sufis say, oh yeah, he's really great. He's really authentic. Others say, oh no, he's a government stooge. Real Sufism found with like the, the government Sufi. But it's amazing that there was such a position, that there was an official, not just Mufti, giving uh, fatwa on, on, you know, rulings of Islamic law, but you also had a head Sufi, um, somebody who is an official representative of that expression of, of the Islamic tradition. Right. Um, like another example that, you bring, that, that comes to mind is like the Ottoman Sultan for, for a period of time, they had, when he was coming into office, essentially, there was a ceremonial where the, the Mevlevi Sheikh would put the turban on his head as if to say like, I'm the spiritual authority, but here you're the temporal authority. And that's so, right. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, it, it's, it's it, to think about that now, you know, to think about uh, how many, you know, Muslim minds today would be totally blown by knowing that a Sufi was inaugurating the most powerful Muslim in the world at the time. Like it, it is, it really is. There's been a, this amazing sea change, but, and, but I think that that kind of leads us into how that started to happen is, you know, again, nothing feels like success that these, um, that, that Sufis had become so entrenched. Uh, and in some cases, people knew that there was a lot of um, uh, charlatans. There was a lot of, of fakery. There was a lot of abuse. Um, you, know, you, you, uh, you know, at some point, Sufis would say things like, oh, you know, being a Sufi, what, that's just an excuse to sort of get out of the army and to live off of government welfare. And, you know, Sufis themselves were saying, look, it's become something sort of ridiculous uh, in part. It was a it was a reality without without a name, and now it's a name without a reality. You know? Well, exactly, and then you know the, the kind of the scary thing for people who are interested in Sufism is Sufis have been saying that since like the tenth century. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> also makes you wonder what it was like back back in the day. But um, all all that being said, you know, uh, I, I you know there are of course other examples all over the world, like South Asia. You know, uh, to this day, many Muslims there say, "Oh man, like." Some of these peers are, are criminals, you know, they're, they're exploiting illiterate peasants and they're saying, if you don't, you know, give me your first child as my servant, I'm going to curse you in the afterlife. And they think, oh my God, he's, you know, so a really a, a lot of, 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 I think, uh, abuses started to, to uh, happen. Um, and Sufis were, of course, very well aware of this. And the reform of Sufism became a sort of widely known issue, uh, a widely discussed project among Sufis and, and those opposed to Sufis. Um, but there was a sense that, that some kind of uh, corruption had set in due to the, this, this enormous uh, success of being fully integrated into the Islamic infrastructure. Um, so I think that's a piece of the puzzle. You know, I think there, that, that turned a lot of people off. Um, uh, and now that being said, Sufis did in many cases successfully reform Sufism. I mean, there were all these it, they've been called neo-Sufis, but most scholars now, I think, reject the term as being a bit over, overdone. But there were a number of sort of revivalist Sufi orders. Uh, I mean, if you think of the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi, uh, Naqshbandi uh, Mujaddidiya in, in South Asia is a, is a very good example. Ahmed Sirhindi, very thick, very Sharia-oriented Sufism, uh, a Sufism very much tied to Islamic identity uh, and, and also imperial power. You know, Ahmed Sirhindi was, was writing the Mughals you know, really, you know, emphasizing that they enforce Islamic law and, and have an Islamic uh, empire. Um, so, you know, I think that that did make a difference. But at the same time, it also engendered not just uh, Sufi reformers, but what I would call anti-Sufi reformers. 
Um, this certainly gave uh, fuel to that cause and, and, and I think helped to engender a sense of um, total opposition to Sufism. Um, but then, of course, we need to speak about um, uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab and what was then called the Wahhabi movement. Um, generally, now the uh, intellectual offspring, the spiritual and theological offspring of Ibn Abdul Wahhab tend to self describe as Salafi. And so I think it's. Uh, it's probably fair to use that term. Um, I think Wahhabi is a fine term to use for the initial movement, because it's a historical term for historical movement. Um, but I think using it today, we just have to be very conscientious that it's a pejorative term. I mean, it's, you know, no one self-identifies as a Wahhabi. Right. Um, so, you know, Salafi is probably the better term. Um, but, you know, the whole Salafi movement, um, broadly speaking, you know, I'm kind of painting in broad strokes now, but broadly speaking, the Salafi movement coming out of Ibn Abdul Wahhab's teachings was really a watershed in the sense that it was the first school of Sunni thought um, that totally rejected Sufism. Right. Uh, that wasn't just, in, that wasn't, you know, even Ibn Taymiyyah and, and Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyah, you know, these, these were individuals who were deeply critical of what they called philosophical Sufism. Sure. Specifically the, the school of Ibn al-Arabi. Yeah. But they themselves were, were known to engage in, in some Sufi practices, and, and there's some evidence that uh, Ibn Taymiyyah was a member of a Sufi order. Padre, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and a lot of Hanbalis were. You know, that's the other thing, too. Sometimes sure. people think that, that Hanbalis... Father Jilani was Hanbali. Well, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, and he was, he was also, uh, you know, a fire and brimstone uh, preacher. You know, he would get up in the Friday mosque and, and give the, the old school uh, sermons that would you know, try to, try to freak everybody out into some piety, you know, I mean, putting it a bit facetiously, but, but he was, you know, a, a figure like that, who is also, of course, respected as, as achieving some of the greatest heights of, of, of spirituality uh, in the Islamic tradition. Um, so it is important to, to not create this dichotomy between like a conservative Sharia Hadith-based approach that is characteristic of the Hanbalis to say that's over here and then Sufism is over here. Uh, because Sufism and Hanbalism have, have really overlapped in, in a lot of cases. Um, that being said, there is a, a wing of the Hanbali school uh, that, that had a branch off the wing, to kind of stretch the analogy here, that uh, became increasingly anti-Sufi. Anti and I think with, with Ibn Abdul Wahhab, you get even a, a break from Ibn Taymiyyah, you know, even going much further than Ibn Taymiyyah would have. Uh, in, in sort of, and this is why sometimes this school of thought is, is called uh, takfiri, um, because of the, um, the comfort and even gusto with which some followers of Ibn Abdul Wahhab, and, and we've seen some of his writings as well, the, the, the gusto with which they were willing to declare whole swaths of, of Muslims to be kufar, to be non-believers. Um, so I, I think that is also a really important piece of, of this puzzle. Um, when, when people go, you know, why is it now that Sufism can be really a bad word in some contexts, or it can immediately start a big debate? Um, part of it is the fairly surprising and remarkable success of the understanding of Islam that we can trace largely to Ibn Abdul Wahhab um, that has taken on a few different forms in the modern world. But, but that uh, basic approach, which we can just simply call anti-Sufi, because I think it is explicitly anti-Sufi, um, that is very, very successful, and it's had a huge impact on um, 
how Muslims understand Islam and, and what they think is genuinely a part of it and what is it. Right, yeah. And I think it's important to note, it's not just anti-Sufi, but it's anti this, that layer cake. It's anti the four methods. It's anti yeah, the, the theological schools. It's really making a claim that basically the whole history of Islam was wrong after yes. the first two or three generations, and we, and we need to go back, i.e. to the Salaf, Salafis. But I'm interested in, because you, of course, this starts off as a, as a, as a small sect, and, uh, but what's ironic is that oil is struck under the land that they take. So mm-hmm. is, is that, I mean, is it more complex than that, or is it just that, like, through the immense wealth they were able to kind of export this ideology to become not only just for one group of people, but for be very prominent or at least have an influence on a deep, uh, wide range of Muslims who may not even know about Ibn Abdul Wahhab, but their kind of sensibilities around, oh wait, Sufism is Islam are formed by that, even though they may not be aware of that. And I think that's a really important point. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, when, when, I'm, when I'm teaching classes on contemporary Islam and, and you know, we talk about these labels and, and you, you want to be cautious in, in how you apply them, right? Because especially, you know, students get a hold of these labels and then they want to start putting them on everybody. But what I try to say is, look, like when you're talking about like a Sunni traditionalist or, or a, a Salafi or, or a Salafi traditionalist or a Salafi reformist, and we come up with all these gradations. I'm like, you know, these terms generally apply to theologians most explicitly because theologians will self-identify. They'll say, yes, I, you know, or so even if they don't self-identify, you can look at their lineage. Who did they study with? What, what medheb are they a part of? What school of thought are they a part of? But I said, you know, it, it's often the further you get from that nucleus of, of the leaders of a school of thought, the more vaguely those terms apply. As, as you said, for many Muslims, there's just a sensibility that they've imbued through the odd, you know, Friday khutbah, through the odd pamphlet or book or through conversations with, you know, somebody in their community. And, and so you don't want to just be saying, oh, you, you said something against Sufism. Oh, so you're a Wahhabi, you're a Salafi or something like that, you know, uh, and, and vice versa. You know, this happens too, where somebody says something about, you know, prayer beads and somebody goes, oh my God, you're a Sufi, you know. So um, I think we want to be a little bit cautious with, with how we apply these labels outside of the self-described proponents of, of these schools of thought. Um, but yeah, I mean, when, when we're thinking about uh, the spread of, of, of this, uh, and we, we talk a little bit about this in, in the contemporary Sufism book, because it's, there, there's a lot of interesting things that come into this. And one is money. I mean, sure, you know, uh, money and, and, and uh, uh, wealth and, and, and power have always played a big role. Uh, we, all, you know, we all know this generally intuitively, but in this case, there's an explicit money trail that you can follow that, that certainly lends itself to partially explaining uh, the spread of, of this sort of Islam. You know? and, and in many cases, it was simply that uh, Gulf countries, and it wasn't just the government, you know, it wasn't just the Saudi government, although the Saudi government at various times wanted to use its version of Islam in foreign policy. Much like everybody uses, every, you know, governments around the world have this thing that they're like, this is us, this is our ideology. You know, of course, the American government has, has this, the same thing. And, and so they use it as a way to say, well, if we can promote our ideology, uh, then that, will, that can only help our global standing and power in the world. And so the Saudis, of course, were concerned in the 1970s 
uh, and 1980s with uh, Iranian revolutionary Shia Islam uh, really freaked them out as it does to this day. Um, they were also concerned with secular Arab nationalism. And they thought that promoting their understanding of Islam would be one way to sort of combat the spread of those um, rival ideologies that were closely tied to rival governments. Um, so there was some government interest, but of course you also had private benefactors, private foundations um, of, of people who really believed in, in this sort of Islam and, and wanted, uh, and, and really thought it was the only Islam. I mean, you know, every crow thinks it's just the blackest as the old saying goes, and everyone thinks their Islam is the truest. And so of course, you know, they wanted to, to promote it. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see that in a variety of ways, you know, these, these scholarships that were given out all over the world for people to go study in places like Medina, uh, where they were often trained in a very Salafi, anti-Sufi, anti, as we've described, Sunni traditionalist approach. And in some cases, they wouldn't have even necessarily realized what was happening. It would have only become clear when they went back and then said, oh my God, you know, this, our community is full of bidah. Uh, you know, harmful innovation. It's full of shit. It's full of idolatry, and, and you know, we need we need to sort of purify it. So that that process has happened. Um, you know, it happens through books. Uh, if you you know you want to get a bunch of free books, you can certainly get a lot of them from wealthy Gulf countries. They'll send you all kinds of books, but those books often have a sort of Salafi subtext, if not you know, um, a very a more explicit message. Uh, so I think that has certainly played a role. Uh, and, and then, of course, there's this question of what, what, you know, it's not just supply, it's also demand, mm. which is what we, we, we discussed a little bit in the contemporary Sufism book. And it, and it is a really interesting question. I mean, and in some cases, if you look at um, the Islamic uh, revivalist movement, which is not certainly not all Salafi, but has been, I think, very deeply influenced by Salafi theology. So if you think of like the Muslim Brotherhood or uh, Tablighi Jamaat or um, Jamaati Islami uh, in, in South Asia, and, and of course there, there are movements like this all over the world in, in various expressions, and, and they're largely based on this idea that Islam is the solution, right? We just need to sort of make our personal and our social lives more Islamic, and then everything's going to click. And all of the quite massive problems that beset post-colonial Muslim societies will be set right. Uh, it's the Islamic dream, right? As as Khalid Abu Fadl nicely put it, uh, and it's a dream that actually a lot of Muslims have, whether they're revivalists or not, right? There, of course, there's there's a part of the Islamic faith is 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 a sense that there are teachings for various aspects of life, and that there are principles that can be used to help uh, heal and and develop uh, life in various contexts, including the, the political and social. Um, but it takes a particular form. Uh, after the 1970s, which we, we call uh, Islamic revivalism. And I think one of the interesting things about that is many of the revivalists are no longer the ulama. And, and this, you know, takes us back uh, one step where, you know, we see the sort of, one of the reasons why Sunni traditionalism has, has sort of lost ground is not simply because of Salafi movements that are opposing it, but also in the colonial and, and post-colonial periods, it's lost, it's lost its institutions. Yeah. I mean, it's lost its material uh, basis. The, the al-Kaf, the, the waqf, the endowment system that was central to um, pre-modern Muslim life, religious endowments, 
that funded uh, all these universities and Sufi centers and such, totally dismantled in, in most cases. Um, the ulama, the, the scholars of, of uh, Islamic law and theology, have been uh, displaced in, in many contexts. Um, you know, uh, in some cases, Sufi orders have been banned and Sufi lodges uh, shut down. Um, and so I think with the loss, and, and then of course the caliphate itself having uh, sort of dissolved, um, the institutional bases of traditional Sunnism have been largely disrupted. Um, and, and, and so what that's done is, as other scholars have noted, it's created something of a vacuum uh, in authority. And, and what, what's happened is, is there's a, really a cacophony of voices that have, have come in. Uh, and it's really Islam has become a more do-it-yourself religion, which is both good and, and bad. <laughs> uh, and it's always been a bit DIY, but it's become to the point that it can be even pathological, where, you know, I've read the Quran and a few books of Hadith, mostly in English. And now online, I'm Sheikh so-and-so L. Kennedy, you know, the, the Canadian uh, scholar of Islam. And, and it can get really absurd. but um, this gets back to your question of, of appeal, and as I was saying, the, the, uh, the supply side or the demand side, sorry, of, of this equation is, is for many people who were then uh, jumping into this vacuum of authority, many of them were engineers, many of them were physicians, many of them were uh, modern professionals, uh, whose understanding of Islam, maybe not surprisingly, ended up looking more like uh, Islam as a professional manual for setting up a system. Like they started using the word system or the Islamic system. And of course, they're coming out of systems environments, right? Uh, and so you start getting this sort of modern bureaucratic professional Islam. Uh, and, and for Islam to work in that context and for Islam to simply be, it's like a software that you just need to punch in to the hardware of individual and society and then everything's going to run beautifully. Right? But to have that kind of technicalist understanding uh, of Islam, you know, there, there has to be a reduction of it. I mean, if you, if you look at the uh, traditional Sunni cake, as we've, we've called it here, um, you know, all these complex layers, it takes you know, decades of study to master even one of them, you know, to even get to a high level of, of fiqh uh, or, or Quran commentary or, or philosophy or theology or Sufism. Any of this is, you know, all these uh, texts and languages and, and practices. And so, you know, in a way, I think there's, there's an, a demand for a simplified, systematized, easily mastered Islam, right? And so then you have to say, well, no, the Quran just has one meaning and it's simple and it's direct. Uh, that Islam itself is just a fairly easily grasped software uh, program um, that we simply implement. Um, and so I think that's partly why there's been a, a move against some of the more esoteric, some of the more mystical, some of the more philosophical, some of the more complex, esoteric. All of that stuff starts to seem to kind of muddy the waters. It starts to seem like it's in the way of simply taking uh, a set system or program and punching it in and then getting uh, the results. So, I mean, that's, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm maybe putting it a bit abstractly, but I think that is a piece of the puzzle as well. Yeah, I think that's really important and important to know. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the fact that, you know, I mean, you think in the pre-modern period that there were Sufi, Sufism was institutionalized in very various places in the sense that like there was a lot of patronage from rulers, etc., And these Al-Qaf, you know, set up 
by private citizens or rulers that we're supporting. So as that kind of goes away uh, in the yeah. colonial period or is taken away in many cases, yeah. um, and then in the post-colonial period, all of a sudden you have these kind of like the, the oil age and, yeah. and this interesting relationship between, you know, the West and, you know, needing this oil and the Muslim lands that, that have the oil, um, that becomes a, a new type of kind of patronage of, of tradition. And That's then also, right. yeah, I think it is really interesting what you say that, and I, for me, I, I do think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, I recently read this book by Tamim uh, Ansari, I believe is his name, uh, about, what's it called? A History Disrupted, I think. Okay. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's interesting in that, like, it's kind of a history of the world from Muslim eyes, but it's written for, like, a Western audience. But particularly what's interesting is not the early history, but the more later history, because he kind of contrasts it to the kind of overarching history of Western modernity and just the Enlightenment and, like, marching forward versus right. how it diverges from the Muslim, like, wait, we were the most wealthy, powerful, we're the last religion, we're, and then all of a sudden, we're getting defeated. Like, what went wrong? And so right. really, like, destiny disrupted as opposed to, like, a march towards progress and enlightenment, and you know what I mean? And how those right. competing narratives, just stories about what history is, um, really are at the root of kind of the, what, you know, what is the tension, shall we say, yeah. or a lot of the tension between the West and the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. um, I think oh. like, a lot that you touched on, but I'd like to bring in that that second piece, which is that, okay, the West itself is interfacing with Islam, uh, studying Islam, and you know, Orientalists are looking at it, especially like 1900s uh, and 20th century and, and 21st century now. And um, I'm curious in the sense that there becomes this dichotomy that is now like very full-fledged in the sense that like, I'll just speak from my own perspective. Yeah. I grew up in Seattle, uh, yeah. very kind of liberal West Coast city. Um, I remember going into the kind of metaphysical bookstore. Mm -hmm. I was deeply interested in Eastern mysticism. Um, I was reading all about, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, all, even like ancient Egyptian stuff. I was interested in like indigenous First Nations spirituality. I was reading books on Sufism. And I really didn't even understand in the way it was presented to me in those books that Sufism was, was really kind of a separate thing from Islam. Like that's how it was presented, you know? And I think that's how a lot of Western people in the world, if you look at people that are into spirituality or literature or, or, you know, creativity or anything related to kind of uh, meditation or yoga, they, pro they almost, under, you know, undoubtedly have a book of Sufism or at least a uh, Rumi or Hafiz on their bookshelf. That's and right, if you yeah. were to say, uh, and I have said this, by the way, many times, you know, like, um, if I were to say I'm a Sufi poet, <laughs> that's, re that's, that's received 
much differently, to put it yeah. like, than saying I'm a Muslim poet, right? right? So like, if I'm a Sufi poet and I talk about Rumi, all of a sudden it's like, I'm so interested, tell me more. But if you start talking about Islam, it's like, right. uh, I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think that that's very accurate. Um, so I'd love to hear, I mean, again, I know this is like a whole chapter in the book, but just what, what are the major, like, how did we get there? Like in the West with the reception, like what exactly happens that kind of bifurcates in the, in the Western consciousness, Islam from Sufism? And another great question that, that uh, there's really a lot there. And so again, I'll try to maybe just pick a few points of entry into it. Um, I mean, you know, one of the things that happens, and, and there is some, you know, one of the things we tried to do in contemporary Sufism is, you know, we didn't want to create um, too dichotomous of a narrative of, of this intercultural exchange. Um, because there were a lot of things going on, and some of it was a little nefarious, and some of it, I think, was quite beautiful. And, you know, I, I really think it's important to highlight both of those. Uh, aspects of, of this sort of intercultural exchange where the sort of the West comes to discover Sufism, to speak broadly. Um, I think some of the, the quite beautiful um, developments were artists and poets who had come to discover um, Persian Sufi poetry. So, you know, people like Goethe in, in Germany, really, I mean, just a, a brilliant uh, mind, a brilliant artist, brilliant thinker. Um, who was, 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 I think, very sincerely and, and deeply drawn to not just Persian Sufi poetry, which he truly was. I mean, he loved Hafez. He really, really did. Um, but he was also drawn to the Quran. He was drawn to Arabic. He was drawn to Islam more broadly and had a tremendous amount of respect for it. Um, and so, you know, it, it wouldn't be right, I think, to lump him in with, you know, like Ernst Renan, for instance, uh, a sort of one of the, the chief Orientalists who uh, did have uh, a, quite frankly, racist, imperialist, colonialist agenda. Uh, and, and Goethe, I don't think it would be in any way fair to, to include him in that more nefarious approach. Uh, and so, you know, you get this quite beautiful cultural exchange um, uh, where I think Goethe actually did appreciate the, the Islamic quality of, of, of Sufism as, as much as he could, you know, understand it based on the access that he had. Um, then, of course, you have uh, Emerson in, in uh, America, who also um, really got into the poetry of Hafez. And that only happened actually because of, you know, colonial administrator, orientalist, uh, William Jones. Uh, and William Jones is such an interesting figure. We, 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 you know, I don't, it's hard to do justice to him, to be honest, because he's, he's such an influential figure that really not many people know about. So we, we tried to give again, a three-dimensional take on him. I mean, Edward Said, um, I think, highlights some of the important ways that Jones kind of mapped off and domesticated the Orient, uh, Islam, uh, Asia, uh, to facilitate um, British understanding and control and ultimately rule. That certainly is a part of his project. But also he was a, a perennialist, a uh, genuine perennialist. And, and he also had a tremendous respect for uh, the Persian and Sanskrit languages in particular. I mean, he was convinced they were some of the greatest languages in, in human history. 
he thought in some cases they were likely older and, and superior in, in structure to Western languages. Uh, and, and he really thought that, you know, we could bring the world together if we could just understand these, these different traditions and see how much they actually share. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of uh, very different facets to Jones, but, but him and, and others were instrumental in, in actually translating some of this stuff, uh, both, you know, Sanskrit and Persian, uh, among other languages, uh, into, into English uh, and into other European languages. And so then, you know, these artists could, could have access to it. So, you know, there, there's a whole um, layered story there of, of how the West came to uh, discover Sufism. Now, one of the key pieces there is that it's also what were the texts, right, that Westerners were, were encountering Sufism. And, and so, one, of course, the, Hafiz is great. I mean, Hafiz, but he's also irreverent. He's, he's critical of the religious establishment. I mean, there, there is a real um, meeting of the romantics, uh, like Goethe and Emerson, that whole romantic movement, which was all about creativity and intuition and inspiration and individualism and rebellion and love. And, and yes, so was Hafiz. I mean, like, there is a reason they loved Hafiz. I mean, he, he also has, he's a sort of Islamic romanticist. I mean, um, they shared a lot of, it, of, of interest. And, um, but then, of course, you, you know, Hafiz is a little bit, you might say, Sufism is counterculture somewhat. I mean, even though he's deeply enmeshed in the Islamic tradition, right? I mean, to be counter, you have to be cultural to be countercultural, if that makes any sense. You have to be, you know, so enmeshed in that tradition to even develop a sort of alternative wing of it. So, you know, I'm not trying to, to say that. Sure. No, Hafez, but you're right in that Hafiz more than, than, I mean, this is a real current in Sufism, but he like embodies it almost like more than anyone is this radical authenticity. So this like yeah. extreme criticism on formality and yep. hierarchy and structure, even Sufis, like he's very critical of Sufis as like a term as opposed to a reality. And so his whole thing is just like smash on, on the ego that anyone who identifies as something like his whole thing is like, I'll be with the rebels. I'll be with the drunkards. I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. is they're real? <laughs> right. And so, yeah, that totally makes sense that those, those, you know, romantics and transcendentalists, they were like, him, he's the one, you know. Yes, yeah. They, I mean, he, you know, they were really, I think, hitting a lot of the same notes. Um, but that can also then create a sense of of Sufism as being an alternative to what we think of as sort of orthodox, you know, legal legalistic Islam, what have you. Um, but then, but then, you know, the other thing is some of the other Persian texts that uh, Jones in particular came across were, you know, were 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 fairly exceptional and, and represented maybe more the perennialist, universalist wing of Sufism. And, and that's something I think is important to say here too. When we're looking at this idea of Sufism as sort of a universal mysticism that transcends the borders of identity and religion, you know, there has been an, uh, an element of Sufism that has, has taken that approach historically. You know, that, that wasn't invented in the West. Um, and, you know, I mean, India is just the, the greatest uh, example, I think, historically of, of this sort of universalistic Sufism, um, where you have Hindu Sufis and you have Hindus making pilgrimage to, to Sufi shrines and being healed by Sufi saints and, and, and vice versa, this real synthetic mixing uh, and, and, and an emerging sense of a universal divine that goes beyond all of these different identities. I mean, so that, you know, that wasn't something that was invented in uh, you know, San Francisco in 1967, right? Um, but, you know, if we're, if we're getting back to uh, Hafez and then some of these other Persian texts, they presented, uh, in some cases, more of a perennialist 
understanding of, of Sufism, which the, the thing with the, the problem with Jones was that's all he was exposed to, right? He just got access to a few of these Persian texts and then formulated uh, uh, the sort of English, quote unquote, understanding of Sufism, right? It got filtered through the limitations of his own encounter, which was limited to some of the more perennialist uh, romantic um, expressions of Sufism, which are, are beautiful and wonderful, but completely leaving out the much more, um, you know, numerically uh, and historically prevalent expressions of Sufism, which are simply assumed to be, as we've described, a sort of layer of Sufi, or, or sorry, Islamic practice as, as, as a, a piece of the Islamic uh, puzzle. Um, and, and so I think that then led to sort of a, a chain effect of, of people following Jones and, and English translators and interpreters building off of that sense that Sufism is, is actually really uh, this sort of universal mysticism. Um, and then, of course, the, the, maybe the final thing that I'll touch on briefly here is uh, 19th century and 18th century uh, racial theories actually have a bizarrely outsized uh, role here. Um, one of the things that happened after, I mean, and Jones was also really seminal in, in discovering language families. I mean, he is, is largely credited with, with realizing that Sanskrit and Greek and Latin come from the same place, that they're, they all come from one language. They're uh, branches of the same tree, which is remarkable when you think of how geographically diverse uh, they are. But one of the things that happened from that is people uh, came up with this category of the Indo-European language family or Aryan. Right, so they they used this sort of Sanskrit and Persian term for noble Arya, and came up with Aryan, which was another way of saying Indo-European, and they contrasted that in particular with the Semitic language family, and and linguistically there there are differences. Linguistically, the Indo-European language family, from what we can tell, is a real language family, and the Semitic language family is a real language family. Those languages share things that other language families don't. Um, now, here, here's where it, it takes an unfortunate left turn. I mean, all, all's fine and well. You go, yes, there are different language families. They have different structures. They're related to one another. But what happened at some point, especially in the 19th century, but even a bit earlier, was the sense that the Indo-European or Aryan uh, gra grammatical structure is more dynamic and flexible. And of course, that's because the Indo-Europeans or the Aryans are a superior people. And that the Semitic language structure has, has tended to remain more static over time, which to me is also kind of amazing that it's, it's like a very ancient, it's like preserving an ancient linguistic form. Um, it's one of the reasons why when I studied Arabic, I, I, it blew my mind. I mean, I thought it was just such a miraculously programmed language. It was like, who did this? Who came up with this? But, um, you know, so they had this sense of, of, of uh, the Indo-European or the Aryan um, peoples then being a superior peoples, and they associated them with sophisticated philosophy and mysticism, interestingly enough. So they said Semitic peoples are legalistic, and they thought, of course, Jews and Arabs, you know, they've got the law, and they're literalists, and they're kind of fanatics. But then you've got the Persians with this Persian Sufi poetry, and you've got the Greeks with Plato and Aristotle, and you've got the Indians with a Buddha and, uh, you know, Shankara. And so, so they said, clearly, philosophy and mysticism comes from Aryans. So if, if Sufism is a real philosophy and mysticism, which they were pretty convinced it was based on at least the Persian poetry, they said, well, there's no way it's Arab. There's no way it's from the Quran. There's no, no way it's from Muhammad because that's, that's all Semitic. 
So if it is truly mystical and philosophical, it must be Aryan. So it has to come from India. It has to come from Persia. It has to come from Greece. Um, so, so that, and, and eventually you had Sufi scholars who were, who were much better grounded, Louis Massignon, um, Arbery, you know, some of the later scholars in the 20th century who said, look, this is totally baseless. Like Sufism's potentially greatest luminary is Ibn al-Arabi, who comes from the Muslim West. I mean, there's, you know, very little of, of Persian or Indian influence going on in, in Muslim Spain and Morocco. And, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of Sufism is based on, on an in-depth understanding of, of Arabic. I mean, you could say a lot of it's built into the Arabic language. Um, so there's been a correction of that, and a very important correction of realizing that much of, of the Islamic mystical tradition is grounded in the Arabic of the Quran, is grounded in the early teachings of uh, you know, Muslims and, and the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but that's partly where that separation initially came from uh, as well. So that's another point to, to keep in mind. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um... And I mean, to kind of tie these together, I do feel like there's this kind of like overlap of contestation now. Um, I don't know if, if you, did you call it Sunni traditionalism? The kind of, the, that, mm. the, which was once the, the norm in the medieval, but now it's become a kind of a school. That's right. um, I see within that, there's this like dual, there's this dual uh, contestation because you have from within other Muslims saying Sufism is wrong yeah. or it's not part of Islam. And then you're seeing <clears throat> in popular culture and outside of the Muslim community, you know, Sufism is deeply loved, actually, um, right. and celebrated. And so I'm seeing interesting developments. Uh, along those lines in which, um, you know, this kind of, you know, there's, there becomes an almost reactionary insistence on the kind of like a kind of very legalistic Sufism that's like yeah. very in line with the sacred law and, and things like yeah. that. So I don't know if you have any reflections on that, but it's interesting. I noticed that because I've heard also, uh, you know, I just see a lot of the Muslim discourse about Rumi, for instance, and, and this real emphasis and almost like he was a Hanafi faqih and he was a jurist and you know what I mean? And it's almost like they want to pull Rumi down to their level of, you know what I mean? Where, however, I get that, you know, I can understand how you see him, you know, Rumi being kind of represented in a way that takes out the Islam, which is so central to it. I mean, you could, I mean, the whole, all of his work is a commentary on the Quran. I mean, you know, an esoteric commentary. However, Rumi is an interesting figure in that he's also very critical of legal-minded Muslims who take the spirit out and, and of his own self before he had his transformation as meeting with Shams. And so anyway, I think there's just a lot there that I've been reflecting on in that, you know, Muslims that are kind of within that, you know, traditional Sunni traditionalism camp are kind of like Sufism is contested from both angles. No, no, it, it, it's such a good point. It's something I really found in, in my research and, and continue to, and, and it really strikes me as well. And I, and I think what's unfortunate is when, when there's a lot of pressure and, and people are feeling under attack, I think they, they tend to offer a, a slightly reductive understanding of 
Sufism that then protects their position. And I, I actually sympathize a great deal. Um, if you're a contemporary Sunni traditionalist and you're, you're trying to bring a copy of Rumi to the mosque uh, and, and you want that to be cool, you don't want that to be a hugely controversial thing. When somebody approaches you from, let's say, the, a more Salafi approach and, and you know, says, you know, brother, what are you doing with this? You know, this doesn't belong here. And then, you, of course, you want to say, well, wait, you know, you might think that Rumi is, is a universal kind of hippie mystic um, that the popular culture in the West is, is portraying. But actually, you know, he, he studied Hanafi law. He was a jurist. He was a theologian. He was profoundly orthodox. And, you know, this is, this is really the heart of, of the Islamic tradition. I, I, I so sympathize with that. And, and there's, there's a great deal of, of, of that discourse that is, is, is correct, that for many Sufis, and some of the earliest Sufis who were, who were writing the, the early Sufi manuals and, and histories, they, were also, they themselves were, were conscientious of making sure to articulate Sufism in a way that fit very closely with the broader Sunni, uh, really growing at that time, consensus around law and theology. Um, but that being said, and, and like you, I, I, I've, I've seen that and I sympathize with that. But at the same time, like you, I also see how that can actually be a bit reductive. And, and there's the, what I, I love Shahab Ahmed's book, What is Islam? That uh, came out in, I believe, 2016. Really, it's just like, uh, in my, my opinion, it's, a, it's an academic masterpiece. And it was sad to, to lose him uh, so early. Um, but in that book, he does this really nice job of, of highlighting one of the things that was called uh, crooked-hatted uh, Sufism. So, you know, Sufis who would particularly wear their hats crooked to let people know, it was like putting on your baseball cap backwards, to let you know, I'm, I'm, an al- I'm alternative, I'm different, I'm countercultural. Sure. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in opposition to a lot of the, the government Sufis, to the jurists. You know, I'm, I'm going to, or you think of the colanders. Right. I mean, going around basically naked, dreadlocks, piercings, drugs off in there. Um, and, and yet that also being an expression of Sufism, just as you have the head Sufi appointed by the sultan, who is a very orthodox. He's probably Ashari. He's probably Shafi. You know, he's he's got all, all the ducks lined up in the traditional Sunni world and he's as orthodox as they come. And, and one of the things in my work that I've always tried to do is say it's both. It's both. And, and I know for many Muslims now that's hard to say if you are in the Sunni traditionalist approach. It's really hard to say that because it opens you to vulnerability to attack from, from anti-Sufi Muslims who go see colanders, see the, you know, the counterculturals, the, the universalists, the hippies, that, that's what you really are. And they're saying, no, 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 no we're, we're the orthodox. But I mean, you know, Rumi is such a great example. I mean, yes, much of Rumi, you have to know the Quran and the Hadith to make sense of, of much of, of Rumi's writings. But at the same time, uh, Rumi was like, he was pretty street. He was body. Like some of his stuff is so obscene. It is literally like yeah. to translate it and to try to, you know, I wouldn't even want to teach it in class because they're basically like really uh, body, quite crude, you know, totally. sex. Yeah. He's like talking about, you can't just follow one of the Oliya blindly. And he does that using a story about bestiality. <laughs> exactly right so so he's he's all over the map he's he's going places that you know many uh you know muslim scholars today would 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 uh, be very shy to tread um and you know the other thing too is i, I mean uh he also when he was challenged uh, some of the the ulama came to rumi and, and again i believe this is recounted in shahab ahmed's book and they said so what you know shams is apparently this holy person but you know we know he drinks alcohol you know how is this possible 
And so what's brilliant about Rumi is he comes up with a fiqh uh, response to justifying Sham's drinking, which, which again is, is kind of mind-blowing. But he basically said, look, alcohol, sure, it's impure. But he said it only makes water impure in small quantities. So he said, if you're a puddle like you, yeah, you shouldn't drink because a little drop of that alcohol is going to make your little puddle impure. He said, Shams is a mighty river. You can dump barrels of the stuff in there and it's not going to touch the water. You can still make wudu in it, right? So he's, he actually used the, you know, the rules of fiqh to justify something that we, we might say is, is sort of uh, perceived as unorthodox. Um, but, but again, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like some of the stuff I try to do in my work and, and some of my colleagues uh, as well is highlight this both and. It's not either or. Sufism isn't, you know, it's not, you know, just the legal Sharia, Hadith-oriented, Orthodox Islam. It, but it is in many, 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 many cases. Uh, but it is also a, a countercultural tradition. It is also an alternative. It is also the rebel, the freak, the outcast. Um, and, and, and I think historically, I mean, that's a historical statement. Right? It's not, I don't think that's an ideological statement. I think the historical evidence bears out the fact that Sufi expressions are, are both of those things. And I think it's important that we don't collapse them into each other, you know, that we, we keep in mind that it's had these varied expressions, uh, even in the midst of, again, these, these debates where I understand why people want to emphasize one or the other. You know, you're sort of a, a Westerner into Eastern mysticism, and of, you know, it's not in your interest to emphasize that Rumi was a scholar of Islamic law. Um, but again, if you're a Sunni traditionalist, it's not in your interest to point out some of the things we've just been discussing about Rumi. But I think accuracy says we, we should appreciate both. And ideally, we can get to a place where, you know, we can confidently, you know, discuss and, and, and highlight both of those expressions of Sufism. Yeah, I think that's so important. And, and I've realized, like, it kind of leaves one with a conundrum where you have to make a decision because either you have to kind of tone down your Sufism and you have to use words like teskiyat and nafs instead of actually saying Sufism or you have to, you know, do other things and you have to kind of like really present it very subtly so as not to ruffle feathers within the Muslim community. But by doing that, you're going to necessarily cut off your ability to reach out to, I think, a general Western audience that is very receptive to Sufism and actually would even be receptive to a more nuanced discussion of how Sufism is an outgrowth of the spirituality of the Prophet Sallallahu and how he passed on, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, and, and so, I, but I think, you know, so you almost have to make a decision. Like, who am I going to speak to? Am I going to speak to the Muslims more generally? Or am I going to speak to uh, a general Western audience more generally? You really have to make a decision because if you kind of like plant the flag of Sufism and you kind of present, uh, you know, and, and speak openly about that, the tradition and the history and, and the great, you know, uh, representatives of Sufism, um, if you do that, you're going to alienate a lot of Muslims. But if you, if you, tone it down and try to speak of it in a very, like, in a way that doesn't acknowledge the, mm -hmm. the kind of philosophical mysticism and doesn't acknowledge the, that there were a range of practices and there were a range of perspectives um, and doesn't take into account, the, in fact, the, where Western people are coming from and that psychologically, mm -hmm. as far as their 
there was, you know, moving away from, you know, uh, kind of dogmatic forms of religion and looking for a more heart-based uh, personal relationship with the divine that's based on experience and, and et cetera, then you close yourself off to actually being effective in that. And um, it's interesting. You really have to make a choice in a certain sense. If you are someone who is a, you know, traditionalist, Muslim who sees Sufism as the heart of Islam. You have to make a decision how you're going to present, really. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think what, what you were, you know, you were saying you have to make this choice, and and I and I think that is a really interesting point where you know if you're going to speak to a broader Muslim audience, then then you know it's sort of covert Sufism <laughs> because you know otherwise it, it's going to alienate some people. But then if you want to speak to to Westerners, you know, you you actually do want to emphasize more the mystical, the psychological, the philosophical. Because they're not interested as much in, in as you said, the, the dogma, the law, and, and such. Um, so, I mean, it, it is an interesting conundrum. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, people have approached that in different ways. I mean, I think Baba Mahayadeen, um had a, a very interesting approach in this respect. Um, and as, as part of some of my first research, I spent a little bit of time in, in Philadelphia and interviewing his followers. And I was so struck by... The, the range of understandings of Bawa, you know, it seemed like there were five, you know, there were five of him because there were, people had such different understandings and he taught people so differently. I, I met one uh, woman who was a, an educator. Um, she was a scholar, um, you know, very, I think, profound uh, thinker and a devout follower of Bawa's from a very young age, had some very interesting experiences as a young woman um, that led to her writing letters to him and, and eventually coming to join him in America lifelong devotee. And she said, when I asked her about um, talking to her about Sufism, she said, when I, when I heard what you were studying, I didn't even want to talk to you because you can't box Bawa into Sufism. That's a label. That's a box. Islam, Sufism, any of these. He, he you know, is just so beyond any possible category. Um, you know, she was just like, he's, he's a sort of enlightened soul. He's teaching wisdom. He's bringing light into the world. And, and that is something that cuts across every single possible box, barrier, boundary you can imagine. And so she wasn't somebody who would identify, she wouldn't identify as a Muslim, but she also wouldn't identify as a Sufi. Mm. You know, but all, all of that was just, you know, way, way off the mark. Uh, and, and, you know, had a very uh, particular understanding of, of Baba's teachings. And she said he never told me anything about Salat or prayer or, you know, anything like that whatsoever. She said, he never mentioned it to me once. Then I spoke to the imam of the mosque that Bawa had set up. And again, uh, he gave a khutbah. I attended his Friday khutbah and it was very classic, you know, again, a bit fire and brimstone, thinking of the day of judgment, you know, thinking of where are you going to be? What deeds are you bringing? Um, you know, if the companions were as, was afraid as they were about the day of judgment, how are you going to fare? You know. Uh, and, and he had a long beard and he had the, the robe and, um, you know, was, a, was an orthodox imam. And he said, Bawa told me to be an imam. Bawa told me to establish the prayer in an orthodox way. Um, and, and so I, I thought that was really interesting. And then it was also in between, you know, I, I could name and describe other perspectives on Bawa that fell somewhere in between those, those two. Um, so he had an interesting way of, of teaching people kinds of Sufism that were totally formless and kinds of Sufism that were totally grounded 
in uh, Islamic law and practice. And again, I, I don't even really know fully how to make sense of that. I don't know if, if anybody does, but um, it is an interesting example of, of uh, taking that, that conundrum on. That's a great example. And I mean, it also brings up another example, which I think you mentioned. Yeah, you mentioned in your first book, Muzaffar Effendi, right? He yeah. comes from Turkey and he's, you know, tradition trained scholar and also the Jarahi Sheikh, head of the Jarahi order. And he sees that basically he establishes two branches of the order. One that is very traditional Islam, Iman, Ihsan, um, for those that are ready to really adopt, you know, the, the entire tradition. Many of them might be born Muslim. Some of them are converts, etc. Yeah. But then he sees there's a, there's a group of Americans, probably the majority, that they're not going to sign up for all that but that they are very interested in spirituality and meditation and the depth of uh, wisdom in the Sufi tradition. And they're, yeah. they're very open to the, the you know, meditation and the chanting and the whirling and the song and just the depth of insight into how to live a more awakened, more present, more full life. So That's he right. literally creates two branches, one for each uh, group and appoints, you know, uh, Lex Hickson, Noor Lex Hickson, his student who had came from that, you know, kind of ecumenical, spiritual, I guess you could say new age, but just someone who was deeply steeped in the various contemplative traditions generally. And so he puts him ahead of that. And that's the, the order that you mentioned, uh, Sheikha Fariha, right? That she's not the head of that. In, yeah. No, I think it, I think it is a, another uh, another good example of that, um, where you where you have in that way, you know, it, it's interesting that you brought it up in, in light of what we were just saying in terms of the conundrum, because it's almost like you know Muzaffar Effendi made the choice to do both, right? To, to sort of say, well, you know, as, as you described, here's here's a version for people who are are grounded in in the Islamic tradition, and and here's a an approach for people who might be a bit less so. Um, but, but at the same time, I mean, and, and, and this also brings me to uh, an individual that I've been doing a bit of work on since um, the dissertation, uh, Llewellyn Von Lee, and I think we may have discussed him briefly uh, last time, but I, I find him such an interesting Sufi teacher because he's Naqshbandi Majadidi, right, which, is, which began, as, as we said earlier in our discussion, uh, an Islamic revivalist uh, Sufi order that was very much em emphasizing Islamic orthodoxy in practice and law. But at some point, a branch of the Naqshbandi Mujaddidis began to initiate Hindus into the fullness of the Sufi path and, and without requiring them to convert to Islam. Basically saying your religious identity is besides the point. This is about haq. This is about truth. This is about realizing reality, which is God. Uh, and it actually doesn't matter what your cultural upbringing is at, at all. So you get this sort of Hindu Sufi family. Um, and then it goes to Irene Tweedy. And then it goes to Llewellyn Von Lee to the point that you have a non-Islamic Naqshbandi Mujaddidi order, which, which just that phrase alone, if you, you know, have any understanding of the history of that, is sort of mind-blowing. But the thing I found with, with Von Lee that was so interesting is he said, look, like, he said, I don't have any problem with, with people who are Orthodox Muslim practitioners. I'm well aware that that's what the majority of Sufism is. But he said the Naqshbandi masters are architects. He said they've been designing things for centuries. And they know they can, you know, they have foresight, they can see where things are going. And so they design certain um, spiritual systems 
to work for particular people at particular times. And he said they knew generations back that many people would be drawn to a more formless path. So he said, I'm traditional in the sense that I'm just following what my shayuk, my masters, are, have created and what they've told me to do, which is to teach formless Sufism. And it's, it's fascinating because he'll still say, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you know, Van, Van Lee is very well aware of, of his lineage going back to the Prophet Muhammad. He's very well aware of it being rooted in the Islamic tradition. But he also is convinced that, you know, he has been taught to, to teach it in a, in a very formless way. Um, and, and so I think it's another example of, of the diversity within Sufism and that different Sufi teachers address that conundrum in, in different ways. And I'm of the inclination after speaking to many of them, not, not to in any way create some sort of hierarchy or say this one's better or that one's better. From my vantage point, now this is totally my own stuff, you know, but my, my vantage point is, and, and having met many of these teachers, is it just works for different people. Um, and if, if people's hearts are being transformed, if they're, you know, finding uh, moral and spiritual development and richness and genuine transformation, I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm in any position to say, oh, well, that's somehow less authentic. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I, ju I just think it, you know, Sufis are individuals like other spiritual teachers around the world who are very keen on, on finding ways to help people uh, transform themselves. And they're open to the various ways that uh, they can do that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I've often said, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm really much less interested in Islam or Sufism as identity and much more as method. Like, and I, I think see. a lot of it, you know, it's just anything in the world. It gets, you know, it, it really can get caught on the level of identity, which in and of itself is not bad, but it's also like an, a level, you know, and, and, yes. and, yes. um, I think there's, like we're talking about in this conversation, it's exacerbated by the fact that Muslim is such a contested identity in yeah. the modern world alone. I mean, the West, of course, but even just generally now. And then Sufi within that. And unfortunately, it brings up just a lot of, uh, it just brings a lot and it kind of like solidifies people in the, that kind of the, the nefs like grasping onto I'm this and, and faction and factionalism and things like that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you know, as they say at every level, there's another devil. So. <laughs> oh, I, I, th I think that's, I think that's very accurate. And um, you know, it's interesting because I, I agree in terms of like identity, right. Um, you know, I think a lot, people fall in love with traditions and, and there's a lot, there's a lot of, of beauty to that. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, you can read Sufi poetry, you can look at Islamic calligraphy, you can look at Islamic architecture, you can read the Quran, you can hear the Quran, and you can fall in love with this, this really beautiful tradition, and, and you can want to make it a part of you. Um, but I, I think you're right, at the end of the day, if, if I'm understanding the Quran and, and Sufism uh, correctly, it's about God, which, which, is, which is the reality. So it's about reality. <laughs> like, it's, 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 it's a finger pointing to the moon, right, as the, as the Zen teachings say. Um, and so, you know, don't, don't take the finger for the moon. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really important point. You can love your, your tradition. And I think you can even have a connection, a strong connection with a sense of identity and community. And those are all beautiful things, but you're right. If you get stuck there, it can become pathological. Um, and you can start to miss the point. You know, you can start to miss the point of the whole thing, which is, which is, as you said, is a method to realize, uh, truth, God, reality, beauty, you know, et cetera. Sure. 
And I think really that's what Sufism was always like trying to remind people. But then different forms of Sufism would become solidified and become about identity and whether you're wearing the robe or the the patched frock or the this or that. And so there was always adaptations to say it's about the reality, not the name. It's about the reality, but not the name because we're forgetful. So we need to constantly, and the ego does like to kind of fortify itself you know, the spiritualized ego, as the, the Buddhists say, this idea of like, you know, <laughs> spiritual materialism, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we've taken a lot of your time, uh, and, and these are things I'm sure we could talk, you know, far into the night about. But um, yeah, is there anything, I guess, in closing, maybe, did you talk about the future or any projections or developments that you saw or uh, anything that's on your mind right now? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you asked it. And, and I think we, we can kind of conclude maybe on, on this note, because this is something in the contemporary Sufism book we, we, did, we did conclude on. And basically, we concluded on the idea that, um, uh, God, first of all, God is unpredictable, right? According to the old uh, Sufi saying, uh, what is it, la takrar fi tijali, there's no repetition in God's self-disclosures. Which, if you think about it, God, you know, being eternal, then there's this infinite variety of self-disclosures that never repeats itself. So God is, is by definition, totally unpredictable. Um, and as a result, Sufis have, have long had a, a tradition of being unpredictable. Um, you know, there's this tradition in Sufism of, of purposefully being unpredictable. I mean, you can even think of the, the Malamatia and, and various approaches. And, and in a way, you can say that's sort of a way of kind of um, embodying this divine attribute. So what we said is Sufism historically is also unpredictable. That, you know, if you were looking at um, the first early Sufis uh, that we have the reports of, you know, just a few centuries after the Prophet, you'd be hard-pressed to guess that at some point the most powerful people in uh, the Muslim world would be inaugurated by Sufis, as you described. And the other thing that we we say to end on that is um, social scientists in the 1960s and 70s predicted that Sufism would totally decline with urbanization. They said, look, it's basically a rural superstition. Country folk are into Sufism. The urban folk are getting into more, you know, uh, reformist Islam or Salafi Islam or, you know, but they're really not into this weird mystical stuff anymore. Um, But that's totally been blown out of the water. You know, the the predictions of Sufism's demise have been radically premature, (laughs) it's, it's shown. Uh, and misguided, in, in, and Sufism is thriving in a globalized, urbanized world. Um, and so when we talk about the future, I think that's, you know, what we, what we, how we ended it in contemporary Sufism was saying, by definition, the tradition is unpredictable. And so I don't think any of us can, can predict, uh, you know, where, where Sufis are going to go next. It is interesting. I'm really curious um, in how it all unfolds. And I think... Um, some of these Western trends are happening in interesting ways in the Muslim world in the sense that um, a lot of educated, uh, you know, upper class, perhaps, uh, um, perhaps you could say more westernized peoples in the Muslim world are also now really leaning towards Sufism and interestingly enough are very interested in what's going on in Western Sufi communities, Western Muslim communities, especially because they're set, you know, these Sunni traditionalists because they're still, it's not like too far out, they're claiming Islam, but they're also like emphasizing Sufism. 
Um, whereas then you also see strains in the, in the Muslim world of people that are, you know, in Iran, you see people that, of course, they love the Sufi poetry, but they don't associate it with Islam at all. They associate it as like anti-Islam in a certain that's sense. Right. So, yeah, that's right. Uh, or Turkey, you could see the same thing, right? And, and I'm sure in the Arab world, although I'm not as familiar with it. So, yeah, I mean, and then I also do believe that they're starting to develop in the same way that, uh, you know, one of the things I'm interested in, I know you know a lot about this as well, is that, you know, people that converted to Buddhism in the West or people that live <coughs> on kind of uh, Indian religious practices, you know, Hindu-inspired practices or philosophical vantage points, um, they really also study, like, Western psychology or Western thought and starting to really adapt into ways that spoke to Western consciousness and, and really kind of felt empowered to pr present and practice a tradition in a way that's authentic to that tradition, but also understanding that it is, you know, what is unchangeable eternal truth and what is adaptable to circumstance. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I think those kind of, I think there are some uh, developments in, in the West uh, within the Muslim communities that are kind of feeling empowered to explore these in really interesting ways. So I do think there's a lot that, that you know, is, is, we're kind of in the center of it, so it's, it's kind of unclear where it's going to go, but I think it's going to take some interesting manifestation. Yeah, no, I, I would just, just second that and, and say I think there's a, lot of, there, there's a lot of creativity going on right now. Um, and I, and I, I think if I'm looking at, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, this is as tentative as it can get, but, you know, if you're looking at, like, the state of Islam, you know, 30 years ago, time with the 80s, 90s, I mean, I remember in the late 90s, um, the Islamic discourse, at least in North America, was, was I would argue, much more two-dimensional than it is today. It was much more limited. And so I think in North America, and I think globally as well, uh, I think there's, there's a real uh, explosion of, of creativity and, and exploration, as you said, people feeling empowered to explore idiosyncratic expressions of Islam and, and Sufism that, that speak to them and, and offer genuine transformation. And I think as long as that's happening, um, there'll be some, some very cool things uh, taking place. Alhamdulillah. Well, I appreciate you joining us, and uh, I look forward to diving deeper into those two works. I'll make sure to put the link for people that want to check it out. Um, is there, like, a website or a, a place that people can find your work? Uh, you know, I'm on academia.edu. Um, you know, I, that's, it's, it's not a website that... Um, uh, I, I use a terrible amount, but but I do have some articles up there. That is uh, certainly one place where you could go and, and at least get an overview of, of what I'm up to. So, cool, man. appreciate you. Okay, well, th well, thank you kindly for uh, inviting me back on. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations, and uh, I also wanted to say I've I've really been enjoying the the podcast as a whole. Um, you know, I've been going back and listening to uh, different episodes and. Uh, and compared to some other podcasts that I've, I've listened to, I think this one has a lot of juice, so. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. And people hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, or who would feel this, or who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. 
Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present. And you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global past and present family. One love. Yara